Hi, I'm Stephen Kotowicz. Welcome to Tesla, The Life and Times, for a very special episode. A few months ago, I was contacted by Citadel Press in New York, who wondered if I would be interested in reading an early copy of a new book about Tesla by Dr. Mark Seifer, and then interviewing him on my show. I thought about it, for a couple of nanoseconds, and immediately said yes. For anyone who listens to this show regularly, or even occasionally, the name Mark Seifer will be familiar as the author of the Tesla biography I cite probably more than any other. It was Dr. Seifer's book Wizard that I turned to when I was left with the sense after reading John J. O'Neill's biography of Tesla that there was still more to learn about the inventor. Needless to say, the opportunity to read an advanced copy of Seifer's new book about Tesla and talk to him about his own 40-plus year journey in Tesla research was one not to be missed. We spoke recently over Zoom about his new book, Tesla, Wizard at War, The Genius, The Particle Beam Weapon, and The Pursuit of Power, which is available now wherever you get your books. Prior to reading Wizard at War, I'd been looking at what lies ahead for this podcast and thinking that once we cover Tesla's time in Colorado Springs, we would probably pick up speed and end up covering whole decades of Tesla's later life in the course of a single episode. It just didn't seem like there was a whole lot to talk about after, say, the abandonment of Wardenclyffe in the 1910s. Well, reading Wizard at War has led me to rethink some things I thought I knew about Tesla, and I think it will mean that we'll need a bunch more episodes to talk about those final years of the inventor's life. Such as episodes that cover just what Tesla was up to around the time of the First and Second World Wars, as well as episodes about lesser-known parts of Tesla's life that Cypher's new book investigates, such as whether Tesla was involved in efforts to build the first commercial electric car in the 1920s. Elon Musk eat your heart out. So, stay tuned for those episodes at a later time. And stay tuned to the end of this episode, as I lay out what's next in our coverage of Tesla's life and times. Now then. To give you a little background on Dr. Seifer, he is, as I mentioned, the author of the biography Wizard, The Life and Times of Nikola Tesla, as well as a dozen other works of nonfiction and fiction. Probably the world's preeminent Tesla historian and biographer, Dr. Seifer has been featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Scientific American, Cerebrum, and Nature, as well as on NPR's All Things Considered, The History Channel, American Experience on Radio and TV in Australia, the BBC, NHK in Japan, and featured in the five-part limited series, The Tesla Files, which is available now on Amazon and which he touches on a couple of times in our interview. And somehow, after all that, he's also ended up here on my little podcast. It was a fascinating conversation about a fascinating new book, and I hope you enjoy my talk with Dr. Mark Seifer as much as I did. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Good to be here. Um, before we get into the questions about uh, about your new book, could you just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background and, and what it is you do? Yeah, well, I graduated University of Rhode Island, and I was actually interested in graphology, handwriting analysis. So I went back to New York where I grew up and studied graphology at the New School for Social Research, and then got a master's degree from the University, University of Chicago, um, and I didn't realize at that time that I was right at the site of the Chicago World's Fair, which later would become important, the 1893 World's Fair, because that's what Tesla uh, lit the fair. But I, had, I hadn't heard Tesla's name at that point. And then uh, into the 1980s, um, 
I had already gotten interested in Tesla. So I made Tesla the subject of my doctoral dissertation. I wanted to find out why his name uh, disappeared. Uh, so my doctoral dissertation was actually in psychology. It was a psychohistory, how such, how such an important person's name could actually disappear from the history books. And so I was a psych professor for about 40 years at various colleges, mostly at uh, Roger Williams University. Um, and uh, that's it. I'm a writer. I've written novels, written four, uh, four novels, um, parapsychology I taught for a number of years. And I've been studying Tesla all this time as well. He's just uh, such a fascinating character that uh, you keep learning more and more about him. Um, so that's some of who I am. I'm a handwriting expert, a Tesla expert, a psych teacher. Um, and that's about it. I'm a writer. Great. Um, you mentioned that uh, Tesla was the subject of your dissertation, and then you later uh, wrote what is probably the definitive biography of him uh, with your book, Wizard, The Life and Times of Nikola Tesla. Um, and one of the threads that runs through the new book is a bit about your own journey with Tesla, and you've just touched on it a little bit. So to tell us a little bit about your own journey with Tesla, what drew you to him? Was it was it realizing your that sort of that connection to the World's Fair in Chicago that really got you started on him as a research subject, or how did you first get interested in him? Well, I first got interested in him in a very bizarre way. I was teaching a course in parapsychology, and I was writing a, a, an article for Ancient Astronauts, which was a magazine that my friend had, Howard Smuckler. And uh, it was about Lapsang Rampa. He was a Tibetan Lama. Uh, and see autobiography of a Tibetan Lama, it's called The Third Eye, great book. But you don't find out to the third book, and I read the second book, I read them in order, that the, in the third book, you find out that Bob Sangrampa is no longer alive, and that the author, and this was in the 1970s, was a fellow by the name of Cyril Hoskins. He was a British plumber, and he wanted to die, and the real Rampa wanted to live, so they swapped souls. That's the story of this crazy story. So I was writing an article about Rampa, in, actually in defense of this, because I, I highly recommend these books. So I'm down in New York reading a book on avatars, and one of them was Rampa, one of them was Jesus Christ, and then another was this guy called Tesla, and it said that this guy Tesla was born on the planet Venus, and that he invented the induction motor, the hydroelectric power system, remote control, fluorescent lights, robots, uh, vertical takeoff airplanes, and listed a whole bunch of these inventions. And I said, I thought Rampa's story was crazy, but this is even nuttier because had this guy really lived, uh, I certainly would have heard of him. My father was an electrical engineer. So I was in the New York Public Library and I found an article written by Tesla from the early 1900s on high frequency phenomena. And I said, my gosh, this guy really lived. So when I got back to Rhode Island, where I was teaching parapsychology at Providence College, uh, Howard Smuckler said, oh, Tesla here. So he gave me the first major biography on Tesla written by John O'Neill and another crazy book called Tesla and the Venusian Spaceship written by Arthur Matthews. And the idea was that Tesla was still alive. Again, this was in the 1970s. He'd be about 140 years old. He's traveling around in a UFO uh, and he's landing in Arthur Matthews' backyard. And so those were the two crazy the, uh, two books I had, one total crazy book and another incredibly great book. But there were gaps in the O'Neill book. And so my next move was to get his patents. The only way you could get his patents in those days was from a UFO organization. And that was the only way you could get uh, the O'Neill biography. That's how little known Tesla was at the time. When I got his book of patents, it's patents, lectures, and articles. The book's a thousand pages long, put together at the Tesla Museum in, in 1956, 
This was a republication. And I looked at all these patents and I saw patents for radio. I saw patents for motors. I said, holy crow, there are real patents here. If I could find out if he really is the inventor of radio, remote control, wireless communication, uh, uh, the induction motor, the hydroelectric power system, or if he's not, I just want to find out the truth. Um, and so I went into the heart and soul of each of these, and that was part of my doctoral dissertation. And then I went on and morphed that into uh, Wizard, the Life and Times of Nikola Tesla. And by this time in the 1980s, I was lecturing uh, at conferences, uh, mostly in Colorado Springs every other year, Tesla conferences, but also in, in Serbia um, and in, in Zagreb. And I was meeting these top Tesla experts, and I was getting papers from all these different people, putting together all this stuff and uh, interviewing people that knew Tesla. Uh, they were still alive at the time. And so that's how Wizard uh, was written. It was really a 20-year project. It was a daily project. And I went year by year and filled in all the missing gaps. Um, again, the O'Neill biography is superb, but there are huge gaps in that biography, in particular, uh, why uh, Tesla's uh, great wireless enterprise at Wardenclyffe failed. And so that what I, is what I set out to solve and also fill in all these gaps. And that really, uh, you know, it, is the reason why I wrote the first biography. Yeah, that's, wow, that's fascinating. It really, it, clearly a lot of detective work had to go into that one. Um, so now you've written a wonderful new book about Tesla called Tesla, Wizard at War, The Genius, The Particle Beam, and The Pursuit of Power, uh, which is published by Citadel Press, and it's available now uh, wherever wherever books are sold. So tell us a little bit about this new book and what brought you back to writing about Tesla after all these years. I think the original biography was 96, is that right? Yeah, 1996 it was published, and it was very well received. It was uh, reviewed in Scientific American highly recommended by the American uh, Association for the Advancement of Science. Uh, Nelson DeMille, the uh, popular writer, called it a masterpiece. And it, it's just a great book. Publishes Weekly said it was revelatory. Um, and so I'm very happy with the book. And frankly, I'm in a little bit amazed that I wrote it. I mean, it's just one of those things, you know, you look at it and say, my God, it's a great book. I'm glad I, I'm the guy who wrote it. Uh, but uh, new biographies started to come out, and one biography in particular uh, from Princeton University uh, Press really irked me because it made mistakes, key mistakes. Uh, it said that Tesla was using um, uh, illusion to sell his patents to Westinghouse, um, and there were other mistakes in there. And that prompted me to start to look into Tesla's life a bit more. And then in uh, 2017, uh, Ken Burns, one of the... Uh, producers of uh, Prometheus Films, they produce a Ancient Aliens and the Mystery at Oak Island, uh, called me and they said, we want to do the Tesla files. Um, we want to set it up kind of like Mission Impossible. And we want you to be the Peter Graves character and you'll send out all the other guys uh, to, to solve the problems. What do you want to do? You want to do this? And I said, sure. So they flew me out to uh, LA and we helped design, I helped design the show. It's a five part uh, limited series. And in the creation of the show, I had a lot of work to do because I had to make this show exciting. So I got out all my uh, files from the FBI and the CIA. They had all been censored or redacted. And at this time, I think Obama is probably responsible, but a lot of these uh, uh, 
letters and, and documents were unredacted. So now I had redacted documents and unredacted documents, and I looked at what was missing. Um, and then we had a research team as well, and we went back to the Hotel New Yorker where Tesla lived, and Joe Kinney, who had been the, uh, uh, they had a maintenance there for 20 years, had a lot of stuff, and he gave me a huge pile of stuff on Tesla. And one of them was uh, uh, from Ralph Berkstresser. Ralph Berkstresser, I had known uh, and interviewed. He's probably the only person working for US military intelligence who worked with Tesla during World War II. And uh, it, it was a very important document which explained all of his attempts to try and locate Tesla's particle beam weapon. So I had that document. And I was also very interested in Franklin Roosevelt because Roosevelt needed Tesla's testimony during World War I when, the, when Marconi sued the US Navy in, in uh, wireless. And, uh, and FDR was the uh, assistant secretary of the Navy at the time. And he wrote, Tesla predates Marconi. So that was really important. Now he's president of the United States. And I began to, in a sense, put myself in, in, in Roosevelt's uh, place. So he's learning about a particle beam weapon from uh, a great inventor that he knows about since 1915. And he's getting a letter from Albert Einstein that maybe we need to build an atom bomb. So I thought that maybe um, uh, uh, Roosevelt would be torn. Like, which way should we go? Should we exploit the particle beam weapon or should we exploit the, the atom bomb? And of course, he went towards the atom bomb. Uh, but I wondered if there was a, a connection between Tesla and and FDR, and I tried like a heck to get a, to find a letter uh, that confirmed this, and I was unable to, but Prometheus Films did. Uh, one of the researchers there found a letter signed by FDR on the White House stationery wanting to meet Tesla. So that was a great find at that time. So I think the making of uh, the Tesla files really prompted me to look at a lot of the secret stuff and Tesla's linked to uh, both world wars. And that's really the, the final impetus, which really got me to, to write uh, Tesla wizard at war. And so that material you mentioned that was um, previously redacted, had it recently been like declassified or it was it, you were just able to get hold of the unredacted copies finally? It, it got declassified is what happened. But even the the uh, the FBI, I had a huge file from the early 1990s. I mean, you know, two inches thick from the FBI, but it was missing stuff. And so uh, Joe Kenny gave me this this Bergstresser document from the FBI. And that kind of got me like, why didn't they give it? Why didn't they give it to me? But anyhow, I got it. And I got another document that was kept out from me from uh, the Tesla Museum in Belgrade. Uh, uh, having to do with um, Tesla's link to the British War Office. Tesla was trying to sell his particle beam weapon to, the, to Great Britain uh, as World War II was uh, in, in the development stages in the, in the late 1930s. Um, so I was getting documents that I couldn't possibly have gotten any other way. And then a guy uh, contacted me. His name's in the book. I can't remember his name, but um, I, I thanked him in the acknowledgments. He was working in the Soviet Union. And, and certain documents were declassified in the Soviet Union. And he gave me those documents. And from those documents, I was able to establish that Joseph Stalin himself had to okay the purchase of Tesla's uh, particle beam weapon, uh, which cost $25,000. Now, $25,000 during the height of the Depression, which by 1934, you got to multiply it by at least 20. Uh, so 250. Uh, five hundred thousand. It's at least five hundred thousand dollars. Maybe, maybe two or three times that. I mean, in those days, in 
during the height of the depression, you could feed a whole, you could feed an entire family of five for a dollar, a dollar and a quarter. A nickel was worth a lot of money in those days. Um, so if he got $25,000, that was like getting at least a half a million, uh, maybe more. And Stalin had to okay that. That was a huge find that I got that's in the, in the new book, but I never would have gotten that had I not made uh, the Tesla files and had this fellow not contacted me. And again, his name's in the acknowledgement. So uh, certainly uh, thanked him. Yeah, that was one thing that stood out to me and we'll uh, we'll get back to that Soviet connection in a minute. But um, so for these documents, the unredacted things and the new material you had, what were some of the biggest surprises? I mean, besides the Stalin connection, I guess, that you found when you looked at these documents? Well, there were two people in particular that intrigued me, uh, Blois Fitzgerald. One of the reasons that intrigued me it was such an unusual name, Blois, B-L-O-Y-C-E, Blois Fitzgerald. I thought he was part of the FBI or the CIA when I read the O'Neill book, um, but he was one of these real mysterious characters. All of his stuff had been censored in the in the redacted files that I'd gotten, and all of Bergstress, their names don't appear. They're blank spots. But I measured the lengths of the names. And so Fitzgerald's a longer name, uh, you know, uh, Blois has a certain name, and Bergstresser. Uh, and, and I was able to figure out, you know, I think this is Bergstresser that's been blocked out here. I think it's Fitzgerald that's been blocked out here. And then sure enough, it was unblocked out when, when the files got declassified. So I found a lot of information. Plus, Tesla saved every letter he ever got. He has 200,000 documents at the Tesla Museum. So all the letters between Tesla and Blois Fitzgerald, uh, I got access to. And I also interviewed uh, Ralph Berkstresser, who, again, was probably the only person working for military intelligence who was working directly with Tesla uh, in 1942 in, in the run up during World War II, actually. So I uncovered a tremendous amount of new information uh, that way. Also, I got CIA documents, which I had never seen before. I wrote to the CIA many times. And I think um, a friend of mine, Tom Bearden, he recently passed away, but he He's a brilliant scientist. Um, and I think that, I know that this, that I think it was a CIA. I, I attended a, co a conference in 1986 and one of these uh, in, uh, in Zagreb, in uh, Yugoslavia, uh, Croatia now. And uh, there were, you know, a few, a few uh, speakers and five of us were sitting around a table. And I remember one speaker, she was allergic to bees. And th this other guy, his speech came right out of the O'Neill book. There wasn't anything original in it. And just, you know, just the guy, the kind of guy I am, I put my arm around him. He was sitting right next to me. The reason I did was I was trying to feel his vibe. Um, and it was cold as could be. And I was sure that he was a spy uh, for, the, for the U.S. government. Uh, and so I had CIA documents that have been, even the, 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 the new CIA documents are still redacted, but I'm pretty sure it was um, a Tom Bearden uh, lecture that was given. So the CIA was definitely very interested in Tesla's particle beam weapon and who attended these conferences and what, what their loyalties were. And I feel pretty certain that one of these guys was actually at the conference that I spoke at in Zagreb in 1986. Um, and so that's uh, some of the new information I got was that. And then in making the, the, the television show, uh, another researcher, uh, uh, Kenneth Leonard, uh, he uncovered uh, stuff from the OSS, which was the precursor to the CIA. So I got uh, access to the OSS documents as well, which are in uh, the new book, uh, Wizard at War. Wow.
Um, that's yeah. Wow, that's great. <laughs> um, so while uh, it's touched on uh, a bit in other treatments of Tesla, including in your own uh, biography of him, um, your new book really expands on and provides, as you say, a lot of new evidence for Tesla's research into weapons and especially his peace beam, which uh, is usually termed by most people as a death ray. Um, so true to the book's title, Wizard at War, you cover his attempts to build weapons all the way back as far as the Spanish-American War in the late uh, 1890s. You even, uh, at one point in the book, cite an article from 1898, uh, an issue of Electrical Review, where Tesla's called the, quote, genius of destruction. So how central to Tesla's work was was weapons research and uh, what were his motivations in, in building weapons of war? He's usually, I mean, he's usually, when he's thought of, thought of for alternating current, um, you know, bladeless turbine, these sorts of things. But what were his motivations in building uh, weapons? First, you, you need to understand that he's a Serb. And I met a lot of Serbs. I'm not Serbian. Uh, and uh, way back, one of my first lectures in the early 1980s, uh, Mike Markovich uh, attended, he was a teacher at, I think, Columbia University. He gave me a lot of documents, but he was a Serb and he escaped uh, uh, Serbia during World War II. And 90,000 Serbs were murdered uh, by the Nazis and unfortunately by uh, factions uh, of uh, uh, the Croats, uh, Croatians, who some of them align themselves with the Nazis. There's, so there's still tremendous animosity today between uh, Croatia and Serbia. Those two, even though Yugoslavia was one country, they frankly hated each other. Um, and so uh, what Markovic told me was that the Battle of Kosovo, which is in 1389, 500 years ago, uh, uh, 800 years ago, whatever it was, many, many years ago, uh, was the the um, the Turks? Um, they were horrible uh, uh, people to to be to live under. They would chop off the heads of a lot of the warriors that they fought and put them on stakes. Um, there's a famous story where they blinded the entire army except for one man, and they blinded one of his eyes, and his other eye was led all these blind people back home, um, and they raped uh, uh, the women. Uh, so this was the Ottoman Turks, and they were about to sweep through Europe. Um, and the last stand was, if you look on a map, was Serbia, uh, Kosovo. And so the Battle of Kosovo, uh, the Serbs stopped the Ottoman horde from uh, invading the rest of Europe. They would have gone into France and, and uh, Hungary and, you know, all throughout Poland, all throughout uh, Spain. They would have gone, they would have just got, keep going. So the Serbs felt that the rest of the... Uh, uh, Europe owed them a debt because they lost 30,000 people. They lost their kingdom, but they stopped uh, the Serbian people. So what Markovic said to me was that the Battle of Kosovo follows us always. It's equivalent to, uh, for the Christians, uh, Jesus Christ uh, dying on the cross or the Jews uh, escaping, uh, you know, uh, Egypt uh, and uh, the Passover service, you know, with the Red Seas parted, Moses brings them across the Red Sea. That's how important it is. So it, there are warlike people um, and Tesla's part of that heritage. So you have to understand that to understand Tesla is to just understand that he's a Serb who lived in that area where war was still very active while he was there. And, and even into the 1990s, 100,000 people died uh, when Yugoslavia was, was taken apart. So he wanted to create 
uh, so he was interested in war and he was interested in weapons of war, but he also wanted to create weapons for peace that would ultimately create peace. So in 1898, he turned his remote control robot, this is during the Spanish-American War, into a, a, a torpedo. And he felt that if, if everyone had a torpedo that could explode any ship, then no one would put a ship to war because it would be a perfect way to stop world war. This was really the beginnings of, of mad mutual assured destruction, where if, if every country had powerful weapons, there would be no war. So the first example of that was in 1898. Um, and then uh, the next real example for Tesla was uh, his particle beam weapon. And one of the problems about the weapon uh, was he looked at electrical rays as possible as a death ray. But if you take, for instance, a flashlight and you shine a flashlight, the, the light spreads out and loses its power as it goes out. It's the same thing with an electrical ray. It spreads out. So how do you get it to go in one tiny beam? I think Tesla may have invented a laser beam. He, he, he did not realize what he invented. And um, I go into that in both books. Uh, but he certainly did not exploit it beyond noticing that a certain a tiny stream of energy uh, goes out when I bombarded, when I, meaning him, bombarded a ruby, uh, which was inside a globe. Um, so he had laser beams, but that he didn't understand totally what, what a laser uh, could do. So he tried to figure, how can I make this death ray, this ray that spreads out, become narrower and narrower? And he came up with the idea, if I could shoot tiny little pellets which would be particles, that I could create a single stream of tiny little pellets, uh, they would not spread out and they would be very destructive. Um, and that really was uh, the seeds of what became the particle beam weapon. Uh, but since he by nature was a, a, a good hearted person, an altruist in a lot of ways, he wanted the weapon to be used for defense only. So he felt that if every country had a very powerful defense of this particle beam weapon, if every country could perfectly defend their borders from invasion, then again, there would be no war. So it's a second example of uh, what becomes, you know, this uh, mad mutual assured destruction. And what's so interesting, what I discovered in the writing of this book was that Ronald Reagan, who's the father of Star Wars technology as, as president of the United States uh, in the early 1980s, in the 1940s, he was a, a Hollywood star with Errol Flynn, you know, and a very famous and he was in a movie called Murder in the Air. And Murder in the Air was about a particle beam weapon and it, they called it a death ray. So he knew about Tesla uh, when he was an actor in the 1940s and he kept that idea when he became president of the United States to help create uh, Star Wars, which would be uh, the same concept, essentially, these giant uh, energetic rays which would protect countries from invasions. And if every country had these, war would, would, be, would make no sense. Wow, that's quite a connection. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, um, so then after your coverage of the Spanish-American War, you move on to Tesla's involvement with wireless broadcasting, uh, and particularly around the time of the First World War. And this includes his involvement with uh, a U.S. subsidiary of a German firm, Telefunken, Telefunken, um, and how they employed Tesla to help them develop a wireless uh, plant in Sayville, New York, uh, prior to the U.S. entry into the First World War. Um, and your book really sheds a lot of light on this period of Tesla's life and works. And 
uh, a lot of details that certainly I think are, are new for the first time and, and certainly new to me. And that includes, as you mentioned before, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's familiarity with Tesla's work uh, and his role while Assistant Secretary of the Navy in helping coordinate some of the legal fight against Marconi, who, as you say, was was suing the U.S. Navy. Um, so can you explain Tesla's relationship with uh, Telefunken and why that company became controversial as the U.S. Uh, got closer to being involved in the First World War? Yes. Tesla was very interested in wireless communication, and he clearly predates Marconi in all of this work. He, he lectured in 1891 at Columbia College, which became Columbia University. He lectured at the Royal Society uh, in London in 1892 before, you know, Lord Kelvin and Lord Raleigh and uh, Dewar and uh, Oliver Lodge and J.J. Uh, Thompson, who got the Nobel Prize for the discovering the electron. Tesla was uh, very well known, and, he, and these were wireless studies that he did. One of the things he did was he created the ability to create an unlimited number of wireless channels. And in 1892, when he's lecturing before the Royal Society in London, he has all these globes in the room. And when he hits different frequencies, these globes light. Some, one will go off and another one will go on when he hits frequency two. When he hits frequency three, the two will go off and three will go on. And they're all different colors. He invented neon lights as well. And so in a way, he was outdoing uh, Tom Edison because Edison had a, a filament inside all these globes. And Tesla said, you, you remember the old days when you, you change a bulb, you burn your fingers. You have to wait for the globe to, to cool down. He said, why waste uh, that in heat? Why not just produce light? So he invented fluorescent lighting. But on top of that, he invented wireless fluorescent lighting, which he had in 1893. Marconi doesn't get into any of this until 1894. Tesla's lectured before thousands of people in 1893, for instance, in St. Louis, in Philadelphia, at the Chicago World's Fair. So he's predated Marconi every which way. And another big difference is that Marconi, once he got into it, even in 1901, all the way up to about 1912, when the Titanic, all the Marconi system could do was dots and dashes, Morse code. And Marconi did not have the ability, he even admits to, to it, of, of creating two channels, three channels, let alone you know, hundreds of channels. But Tesla in 1898 has already created the ability to create an unlimited number of wireless channels with his remote control robotic boat. And if you look at the pictures of the boat, you'll see two antennas rising. Those are two different frequencies. And the reason why he's got two different frequencies was because if you're sending out a torpedo, and you're on one single frequency, what's to prevent the bad guys from interfering with that frequency and having the, the uh, torpedo turn around and then bomb you? So you want selective tuning, you want encryption, you want uh, private uh, privacy. Uh, so he needed to create, so he combined frequencies in that remote control robotic boat. I think that boat alone uh, should have gotten him a Nobel Prize, should have gotten him about three Nobel Prizes, actually. Uh, there's that many different inventions in there. It's a, it's a robot, too. It's a thinking machine, um, et cetera. So the Germans realized how important Tesla's technology was. In America, he had built this huge tower called Wardenclyffe out on Long Island, and he had run out of money. Uh, Morgan had, J.P. Morgan had given him $150,000, but Tesla needed a lot more money than that. And Tesla built a bigger tower than Morgan expected. So they ran into real uh, conflicts here. And so in America, 
uh, by 19, by World War One, Tesla's name had already kind of disappeared. He wasn't that well known by the general public. Um, and the people that were even building radio stations, even in 1915, weren't totally aware that they're using Tesla's technology. Uh, so the U.S. Navy uh, had, a, had a, a, a test, and they tested a whole bunch of different equipment. They tested Marconi's wireless system, and they tested a Telefunken's uh, system, which was German. They said, you know what? The Germans have the best wireless system. Let's go with the Germans. And this is before World War I took place. And we didn't get into the war until 1917. So it was perfectly okay to have German equipment on uh, U.S. American ships, uh, Navy ships. But Marconi, with a big ego, said, how dare they use wireless communication? I'm the inventor of wireless communication. So Marconi sued Telefunken and sued the U.S. Navy. And the best way to combat that suit was with uh, Nikola Tesla's uh, patents, which predated Marconi by many years and were much more complicated. And so American uh, electrical engineers, particularly John Stone Stone, who was the president of the Electrical Society at the time, wrote, I wasn't aware of how important Tesla's work really was to my own stuff. And now I realize he's really the father of all of this. And the German Slaby was calling Tesla the father of wireless communication. So the Germans were very happy to use Tesla's technology. They unfortunately had a policy of piracy. The Kaiser said, you can take any patent you want from any other country and just use it. You don't have to pay people from any country anything. So Tesla was getting nothing from the Germans and the German wireless people felt guilty. So when they hired Tesla to build, to help uh, rebuild the Sayville plant uh, out on Long Island and to build a, a, a Tuckertown plant in New Jersey, they gave him a lot of money and he was getting a, a, a royalty uh, of all wireless uh, impulses that were sent, messages that were sent at, from, uh, from Tuckerton. And he was getting, I don't know exactly how much, but in the equivalent of $15,000 or $20,000 from each of these companies. Again, this is in 1915. You got to multiply by 10 or 20. So it's a few hundred thousand dollars from each of these companies at that time. Um, and so he's closely connected to the Germans. So again, we do not get into the war until 1917. But in 1915, Marconi comes in to be, to, uh, meet for a big legal battle in Brooklyn as to who really is the inventor of wireless communication. He comes in on the Lusitania and he said, I saw a submarine, a U-boat, a German U-boat. And then, oh, don't worry about that. And so he goes back. Uh, he doesn't end up testifying. We have to use his, um, his uh, you know, you, you can speak ahead of time uh, 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 when, you, when you testify. And so all of that uh, information was, was used. Um, in, in the book. So we knew what he would say, but he was called back because of the war. He didn't go back on the Lusitania. He went back on another uh, ship under an assumed name and they sunk the Lusitania and they killed a thousand, 1200 people, something like 1200 people died, including Americans and, and uh, British. Um, and Tesla is working for the Germans when the Lusitania was sunk, but we still were not in the war. So it was still okay to, to work with the Germans. And in fact, the U.S. Navy was still using German equipment. So it was very complicated. So what I get into in the book is the German fifth column. Uh, Franz von Papen was one of the heads of the German fifth column in America. How are we going to keep 
the Germans were saying, how are we going to keep the Americans out of the war? Let's poison any horse that they send to, uh, to Europe. Uh, let's bomb, uh, secretly bomb their factories. Uh, let's create fires on their ships. And maybe we should start assassinating some of the, the leaders that are involved. So uh, J.P. Morgan Jr., Morgan is dead at this time. J.P. Morgan Jr. is shot by a German, and I'm able to tie this German to the, the German fifth column. So von Papen is the head of all of this. And one of von Papen's close associates is George Sylvester Virac, who lives in New York, who is the Kaiser's illegitimate son. And uh, Virac is um, uh, working for the Germans with the, having newspapers uh, creating propaganda. And so he's a close associate of Tesla's, they're very good friends. And he's secretly working with von Papen uh, and the fifth column. So I get into all of that in, in, uh, in the book. It's a very fascinating situation because I think Tesla at some point was naive. Uh, he was unhappy about the sinking of Lusitania, but he didn't realize that the very people he was working for, his boss, uh, uh, Carl George Frank, who was the head of Atlantic Communications, who was a, a division of uh, Telefunken, uh, was uh, indeed part of the fifth column and he got arrested and uh, Zenik, who was testifying, uh, was a famous physicist, got arrested. Uh, and uh, von Braun got arrested. He was uh, shared the Nobel Prize with uh, Marconi. These were all Germans who were involved one way or another. At least they were accused of being part of the fifth column because these the wireless plan at, at Sable was being used to send secret messages to the submarines uh, about what they knew about the British and, and, the, and the French and also the Americans. So that's the crazy uh, situation that Tesla was in in 1915. Yeah, and that's something that was really fascinating to me is, and that you do touch on in the book is, is the concern within some of the elements of the U.S. government about Tesla's, some of these German connections once the hostilities, uh, once the U.S. was involved in hostilities. He was even, as you point out, he was even going to visit Zenik when Zenik was interned on Ellis Island, you know, and, and so people were wondering, well, is, you know, I think they were wondering maybe what side Tesla was on. Um, but some of this anti-German suspicion uh, has even traditionally been tied to the destruction of that broadcast tower you mentioned at Wardenclyffe. And the, the reason for its demolition that I've usually heard is that it was maybe a potential landmark for U-boat pilots or something. You quote um, a report in the New York Sun newspaper, uh, which you say inaccurately says that it was dynamited because German spies were using it to transmit to ships at sea. Um, but you also talk about that Tesla was obviously really desperate to save this tower as part of his wireless transmission uh, worldwide system. Um, and that this is when he began to speak more openly about his uh, his research into a particle beam weapon that he said could protect uh, from against ships, against aircraft, against other forms of attack or invasion. Uh, you know, part of he was hoping to prove its value uh, so that it wouldn't be demolished, but to no avail. So to, to your mind, what is the real reason that that Wardenclyffe Tower was ultimately demolished? Well, uh, before I get into that, I wanted to say one thing about his connection to Sayville, which is very, very important. There's a huge question. Tesla built this 187-foot tower, and we discovered the tunnels underneath the tower in, in uh, the Tesla files. And uh, I get into that at great depth in, in the book. We don't know totally what the reason the tunnels were. But Tesla was very in involved with the ground connection. Marconi was sending uh, impulses through the air 
and Tesla was sending it through the ground mostly. And he felt it was more important to send it through the ground because it was conduction as opposed to radiation, which would spread out and lose its power. You know, radio stations disappear for about 30 miles if you're in a car and you got to get pick up another radio station. Um, so the ground connection is very important. So the big question is, was Tesla uh, full of baloney or ultimately would Wardenclyffe have worked? When he was working for Telefunken and Sayville, Zenik is very well known for using ground waves, uh, uh, guided ground waves, um, and they're called Zenik waves, but I think they're actually Tesla waves, really. Um, they're based on Tesla. So that when they hired him uh, in 1915, uh, he goes to the plant in Sayville, which wasn't too far from Woodencliffe, and he says, you got to increase your ground connection and you got to create another tuned circuit, a third circuit uh, for tuning your, your uh, uh, wireless plant. And if you do X, Y, Z and Q, you're going to increase, you're going to make this thing more efficient. Well, they do X, Y, Z and Q and increase the ground connection considerably. And then the New York Times reports that Sayville has tripled its power and is now the most powerful wireless plant on the planet. I think that that uh, article alone uh, is very important, which establishes that Tesla knew what he was talking because when he gave technical uh, uh, information to another wireless company, they tripled their power. Um, so that's very important. Um, so Tesla's close connection with the Germans might have played a role, but ultimately the real reason why Wardenclyffe was destroyed was because Tesla uh, ran out of money. And he owed, he was living at the Waldorf Astoria. He owed them in back rent $20,000. That's a lot of money in those days. Now, when Jay, uh, John Jacob Astor was alive, uh, Astor was the richest man in the country, maybe certainly one of the richest men in the world. He's the largest landowner in New York City. He's worth at least $200 million, $200 million in those days. Um, and Tesla was good friends with Astor. So I think Astor was so wealthy and this, this wild electrician is living in my place and he's not paying the rent, I'm gonna let him pass. Uh, but once Astor died, he actually died in the Titanic. The Titanic sunk and he went down with the ship. Uh, Tesla no longer had uh, that easy pass. And Bolt, who was the uh, new uh, manager of the, of the uh, Waldorf said, you know, buddy, you owe me $20,000 in back rent. So Tesla transferred the property to uh, the Waldorf Astoria, hoping that he would make money uh, through his working for Save Villain. And also he had, he was working with uh, John Hayes Salmon Jr. selling um, uh, uh, turbines. He was hoping to put them on big ships. So, and he was trying to, and he was negotiating with Henry Ford, trying to get an electric car uh, to replace the gasoline engine. And so he was trying to make money other ways, which he thought he could get, then pay off the, the uh, uh, world of story and then get the place back. But he, the war screwed up everything, and they said, it's too late. You owe us money. We're going to uh, knock down the tower, your great tower, and use it for salvage. And that ultimately is the real reason why the tower was destroyed. It was so that the world of Astoria could recoup some of the 20000 that was owed them uh, from Tesla. So that's really the reason uh, that it was taken down. Um, but in the as they were about to take it down, Tesla is desperate, so he reveals this secret particling weapon that he actually has. And the New York Times covers a story in 1915 that a man in a tower could protect this country. Don't, don't take Wardenclyffe down because this could protect us if we get into this war and the Germans were to attack America. 
So he reveals his, his weapon in 1915 and then later continues to develop it uh, as we move to World War II. So that's really the, all those, how all these connections are, are interlinked. And it's really the reason that you asked of, as to why the tower was taken down. And that, that really leads us into uh, the death ray sort of in the run up to uh, the next section of your book, which in where you talk about uh, the Second World War. So you've touched on it a little bit, but can you briefly talk about what Tesla's peace beam or death ray was and what it was not? You've already gone in a little bit, but just so that people have a, a good sense of what exactly we're, we're talking about. Tesla felt it was his greatest invention and Tesla believed in interplanetary communication. Um, in those days, um, there was a belief that there was life on Mars. Even today, there are articles that they might, maybe there's life on Mars, maybe there's plant life or something that, that's living on Mars. But in those days, they thought that Mars was ahead of us and there were intelligent people, Martians. Uh, and Tesla felt he had received impulses um, from the Martians. So he wanted to create a mechanism to send energy and information to different planets. And I only have one source for this. And one of his people uh, that he worked with was uh, Coleman Zito. And Zito had a son, Julius Zito. And Tesla, uh, both of these men worked for Tesla. They were, you know, uh, they had uh, offices in, uh, well, they had a factory uh, in fifth, uh, near the 59th Street Bridge in New York. And Tesla was using that factory to do a lot of work uh, when he was older in, in the 1930s um, and maybe even into the early 1940s. So I met uh, Julius Zito's daughter-in-law at a uh, Tesla uh, showing of a Tesla movie in, in the early 1980s. And she said that, uh, yeah, my father-in-law would tell me stories. And in 1918, uh, he and Tesla would go out and they, he, they were bouncing beams off the moon. There's no place else that you can find it, as far as I know. And I've looked at everything. I've been done, doing this for 40 years. Uh, so if I hadn't interviewed her, I would never know this story. But he felt that you could create a sense of these, uh, you know, microwave trunk lines in a sense, which we use today. But he wanted to send energy to the different planets. Uh, so that was part of what this particle beam weapon was all about. It was just a, a means of communication. But another way was that he would create a way to repel out these microscopic particles of tungsten. And so he used essentially, a, a, he reconfigured a Van de Graaff generator and instead of a cardboard belt he used an ionic stream of energy that was, say, neg negatively charged. And he had a barrel of the gun, and he would put little negatively charged particles in, in front of the barrel. And the stream that's going around and around would repel out the barrel of the gun, uh, these, these particle beams. I think it's all based on the pop gun that he had as a kid. He talks about a pop gun, but it's the same concept. Um, and what he also realized if you have a cannonball, a cannonball weighs a, a lot, you know, just try to lift a cannonball. It's a lot of weight. And you have to now send that cannonball 20, 30, 40 miles. He figured out mathematically, I have it in the book. He's a mathematical genius. Uh, this other book from Princeton said he didn't even understand Maxwell's equations. It's a joke. Of course, he understood Maxwell's equations. He ran rings around Maxwell's equations. Uh, he calculated that these little particles, how much energy in little particles as compared to a cannonball. I mean, that's the way he was thinking. And that it was so much more efficient to send out these tiny little particles, a little stream where you could take down an airplane. Um, so th that was a lot of, uh, uh, you know, what was involved in this, uh, in this uh, invention. 
Um, but uh, I got a little lost. I forgot exactly what, what your ultimate question was here. No, that's great. I, I just wanted to really give people a sense of exactly what this uh, this beam was, because I know in the book you talk about sort of, as you mentioned before, the analogy of the flashlight. If it were a ray, some kind of electrical thing, it would dissipate over distance. But what we're really talking about is a particle weapon that will maintain its strength over, um, I think Tesla said, potentially even miles and miles, right? Yeah, he said maybe 100 miles or more. And, you know, not at the speed of light, but very, very rapid speed. And, um, you know, he, he tried to sell this. Uh, I mean, he did sell uh, details to the Soviets. Um, as I mentioned, uh, Stalin had to okay uh, the payment of 25000 One of the things I discovered in, my, in, in the, uh, uh, the declassified Soviet documents, had Tesla gone to the Soviet Union, they would have never let him leave the country. And I found another scientist. Uh, that's exactly what happened. Uh, the scientist was Russian by birth, and then he went to England, and he returned to visit his parents, and he wanted to go back to England and continue his research. He said, no, you're stuck here. We're not letting you leave. Uh, he gets a Nobel Prize for his work uh, in, uh, I think, superconduction or something along those lines. So I found that had Tesla been younger, he might have been tempted. Yeah, what the heck? Why not go to Moscow, help them build this thing? Um, and one of the questions is, should he have been selling this weapon to the Soviets? Well, the Soviets were not our enemy at that time. In fact, we were giving them grain. We were, we were helping them out of the, their own depression. Um, and the Soviets, through Romtog Trading Corporation, were buying um, things from General Electric, from Ford, and from 50 other countries. Uh, I mean, 50 other uh, corporations. So it's perfectly okay for Tesla to do this. But I think it was a little dicey that he was selling them a weapon. And I'm sure it was a top secret thing that, that no one knew. I don't think his best friend, Robert Johnson, knew. Um, so he certainly was working in secret uh, about that. Um, but uh, that was really the connection with the, with the Soviet Union. Yeah, and you, you do highlight um, sort of those Russian connections. He Tesla wrote of an offer that Vladimir Lenin made to him to come and work in the Soviet Union, set up hydroelectric uh, stations. He gives, uh, in 1922, he gives a speech uh, put on by the Friends of Soviet Russia. He took a meeting at the Soviet consulate in 34, and as you say, in 35, he uh, he does arrange for this sale that, as you pointed out, uh, Stalin himself had to uh, to approve. But he also you also point out that he also tried to sell it potentially to the British and even to Canada's National Research Council here. Um, so, and I gather the U.S. government was sort of immediately after Tesla's death was quite concerned that perhaps his papers and research might end up in enemy hands or even in Soviet hands if they were sent back to Yugoslavia with his family. So what was what was Tesla's motivation in dealing with the USSR and selling this weapon to him? What did he hope to get out of it? Was was it simply a matter of they would they would pay him, they would fund his work? Or was it something else? I think he wanted to get paid. He wanted money. Um, he, he didn't want to be a pauper. Uh, that was part of it. So I think financial uh, compensation was part of his motivation. But ultimately, he really wanted, he saw it as uh, a weapon for peace. Um, and I think that, and that's how he built it to the, the Soviets. And uh, the Soviet uh, diplomats said, how come you're coming to us? And he said, well, we're both, uh, you know, Slavs. We both share that common heritage. Um, and you came to our defense in, in World War I. Um, and we think that this will help if all countries have this weapon, it will create peace. Um, and so he then uh, contacted uh, uh, Great Britain. 
And I got, you know, the documents from the, the Tesla Museum. I was connected with Great Britain and, and the War Office. And in the documents mentioned in passing, let's ask uh, General McNaughton about this. And then, I, you know, I've got a ton of documents and, and that stuck in my head. Who the heck is General McNaughton? So I looked up General McNaughton. Turns out he's on the cover of Life magazine and the cover of Time magazine. He was the head of secret weapons development for the Canadian government. He was the equivalent of, uh, in America, Vannie Eva Bush, who was the head of secret weapons development for uh, the, the Manhattan Project for America. And in fact, McNaughton is flying down or taking the train down from, from Toronto or Montreal, wherever he was, <clears throat> to Washington, D.C. to meet with President Roosevelt and with Vannie Eva Bush in the run-up to uh, World War II. And I found out that he was actually third in line to be head of Allied forces, uh, Eisenhower, Mountbatten, and then there was McNaughton. And what I, so I contacted the museum. I said, are there any letters between McNaughton and Tesla? Oh yeah, here they are. They gave me a whole slew of letters. So I had all these letters between Tesla and McNaughton. So McNaughton, who's the head of secret weapons development for Canada and essentially the British Empire, he's, he's Churchill's right-hand man. You can see pictures of him sitting next to Churchill uh, looking at combat uh, situations. He's very interested in Tesla's invention and he's trying like crazy to get the details. Whereas in America, there was a lot of prejudice against Tesla. Uh, he didn't know what he was talking about. Um, and you know, the wireless system was folly, it was all fake and really it was Marconi and all that. So he was actually much more accepted by the Canadian government and the military than he was by the American government, except for Ralph Bergstresser, who really um, was a huge fan of Tesla and Blois Fitzgerald, who was a private in the, in the U.S. Army trying desperately, desperately to meet Tesla and learn about the particle beam weapon. So I get into all of that uh, that's going on there, the back and forth. And then, uh, you know, then Tesla dies. Um, uh, when Franklin Roosevelt wants to meet with him, it's literally a week before Tesla died. And unfortunately, he was just too old at that point. Um, so now the government was very aware that he might have sold the details to the Soviets, that he was negotiating with the, with the Canadians. Um, and was there anything to the particle weapon? And was there anything to any of his other inventions that we should know about? So they sent in John G. Trump to look at Tesla's papers. I had the Trump papers since the 1930s. I mean, I mean, since the 1990s, for the last 30 years, I've had the Trump report, which was the, the secret report that Trump uh, made to look at Tesla's papers and decide if there was anything to his secret papers. And I'm from New York. I'm well aware of Donald Trump all through the years. He's such a flashy guy. And he becomes president of the United States. And while we're making the, the Tesla files, I learned that Tesla, that John G. Trump was, was uh, uh, Donald Trump's uncle. It was his father's brother. I mean, I knew they had the same name, but it never occurred to me there'd be any link between the two of them. They're entirely different people. Uh, so, but Trump was very, uh, you know, the Trump the, the, from MIT uh, was very much uh, feeling that Tesla's invention was not a threat. You could send it to the Soviets. You could send it to Yugoslavia. Don't worry about it. It's never going to go anywhere. And Trump knew what he was talking about. He was very, very bright. He was working with Andy Graff. He was a physicist from MIT. And his boss had been Vanny Bush when, when Bush was the, the dean. And I discovered a letter that Dean had written Tesla in, uh, 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 I'm sorry, Vanny Bush had written uh, Tesla in 1931, wishing him a happy birthday when he was 75 years old. He got another letter from Einstein from 
Nobel Prize winners. So I found a real connection with the guy who was the head of the Manhattan Project uh, and Nikola Tesla. And so I've uncovered a split uh, in the American government between one group who believed very much in Tesla's particle beam weapon and anything that he wrote about, and another group that poo-pooed it and said, nah, don't worry about it, send it to Yugoslavia. So because of that split, and because of uh, L.C. Craigie, he was general uh, at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, um, they kept Tesla's papers for 10 years before they sent them eventually to the Tesla Museum. And the big question is, did they send everything over? Um, what were his secret papers? What was that all about? Um, and so I get into that. And, um, and one of the most important uh, examples that I think proving that they used Tesla's technology and hid that they used Tesla's technology because they didn't want to give him credit was the Osprey helicopter airplane. If you look up the helicopter Osprey helicopter airplane, which is a $70 million military plane, takes off like a helicopter, then rotates into the airplane position, you won't find Tesla's name. But the head of Bell Labs was on Vanny Bush's uh, team, and uh, Bell Labs developed the, what becomes the Osprey. And Tesla has a patent on, he called it the flivver plane, where it takes off like a helicopter and flies like an airplane. So had the patent not existed, it'd be next to impossible to prove that he was uh, behind that. He's also behind the railgun, which is a, which w was a development out of the product beam weapon, which is a very efficient, uh, very inexpensive way to take down planes, uh, uh, which is uh, based purely on Tesla's particle beam weapon, which the U.S. Navy is using right now. So there's a question whether there are other things that Tesla was uh, dealing with, like his uh, dynamic theory of gravity, his uh, ability to harness uh, cosmic rays. So there are other things, other mysteries about Tesla. And we wonder, did the, did the U.S. Uh, still have other papers that they didn't send over? Uh, or did the, so the Serbs, have they sat on papers that they haven't uh, revealed? And so some of that is, is you know, discussed at length in the book. One of the other things you talk about in the book, and you've mentioned <clears throat> a couple of people who uh, were sort of believers in, in the value of Tesla's work within the U.S. government. You mentioned that there's a possibility that in some capacity, Tesla might have been working for the U.S. government or with some of these people in the run up to the war. Can you talk a little bit more about that and what that work might have looked like? Yes, um, the, the fellow that I know is, is Ralph Bergstresser. I don't know if Tesla worked with anybody else, uh, but I know for sure he worked with Ralph Bergstresser. I interviewed him at length uh, on the phone. And what Bergstresser said was, I would go to Tesla's apartment at the Hotel New Yorker. He would give me papers and uh, I would take the papers back and I would, uh, and it, he didn't say this, but he, he created microfilms of, of the papers, uh, photographed them. So he was working with the, uh, the U.S. Navy at the time, and photographing all this for military intelligence. And um, the day Tesla died, I spoke to the to uh, the man in charge of uh, Tesla's papers. The day he died, he contacted me. Uh, he said that the head of uh, the OSS uh, uh, sent people over. Uh, the head of uh, military intelligence for the U.S. Navy uh, sent people over. So the, the, uh, the U.S. Uh, you know, uh, war machine was very aware of Tesla's work, um, and Bergstresser was very important to them. And uh, he transferred these papers to the U.S. government, to the military intelligence. 
Uh, but he also kept a copy for himself and he sat on it for 40 years. In 1984, I spoke at the first International Tesla Conference at Colorado Springs. It was 100 years since 1884 since Tesla came to America. And one of the other speakers was a fellow that I knew, Andrea Puharic, who, uh, who brought Arigella to the United States, the, the super psychic Arigella. And he was going to speak about affecting brainwaves, um, like the microwaves attack that, that uh, is happening at the, at the embassies. This was in 1984. He was going to talk about that. But instead, he was given the particle beam weapon paper uh, through uh, one of the intermediary from Ralph Bergstresser. And Toby Groats, who's uh, helped me, uh, you know, with the, the new book, uh, was in charge of the conference. And he now has this paper, uh, a particle weapon paper signed by Nikola Tesla. And he and Elizabeth Rausch, who's a physicist from California, they're afraid. Maybe this is a fake. How do we know this is a real paper? It's coming from that uh, crazy guy, Andrea Puharic, who's a medical doctor, but he's got a wild side to him. Um, because Puharic felt that uh, he, he showed me a watch that he said uh, the UFOs were controlling the watch. So he, the UFOs were around him and all that kind of crazy stuff. And he had gone up to meet with uh, Arthur Matthews, who I talked about in the beginning of the story, uh, who had this uh, Tesla scope, which can communicate with extraterrestrials. So that's who Puharic was. I knew him very well. I was at his house and interviewed him. So they did a lot of research and they determined that indeed this was the real uh, particle weapon paper that we've all been looking for, the secret paper I've been looking for almost 10 years, since 1976. And it was revealed for the first time. It was history in the making. So, so that was 1984. Jump ahead to 2017, so it's 30 years later, thereabouts. I'm now doing the Tesla files, and I'm in uh, the Tesla Museum, and Branimir uh, 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 Jovanovich, uh, Dr. Jovanovich, the head of the Tesla Museum, is putting the Tesla uh, secret papers that are given to the Russians right in front of me. And he's thumbing through the papers. And then lo and behold, is the very papers that I saw that Puharich had gotten. So I was able to verify that not only did Tesla write a part of the weapon paper and that it was revealed in 1984, but that the U.S. government actually did send the paper as part of the estate to uh, the uh, uh to the Yugoslavs who were communists at that time. Now, I think one of the reasons they did was they knew that the Soviets already had it because they could see from the research that Stalin and the Soviets had already gotten the details from Tesla uh, in 1934. But it surprised me that uh, that they did not, although they sat on it for 10 years, they eventually, in fact, didn't in, uh, indeed uh, ship it over with the rest of the estate uh, to uh, to uh, Yugoslavia and the, and the Tesla Museum in Belgrade. There is so much in this book we could talk probably all day, <laughs> but uh, we are coming up to time. Um, but before I let you go, I just wanted to ask you finally, you talk in the book about uh, toward, so toward the end after Tesla's death, whether there may or may not have been a prototype of the particle beam uh, locked up in a safe deposit box, I believe at the hotel Governor Clinton. Uh, and whether that may or may not have gone missing thanks to the work of a government cat burglar shortly after Tesla's death, but before that official examination by uh, Professor Trump uh, of Tesla's papers and his effects. What do you think the possibilities are that such a device existed? And to your knowledge, is there any of Tesla's work that remains in the hands of the U.S. government that remains classified? Or was there anything 
you were denied access to or that remained redacted when you were doing like freedom of information requests? I have written to uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base for 30 or more years, and they have never sent me anything. Um, and uh, they said they don't have anything. But I know for sure that they worked on, on his particle beam weapon. So I think that they have kept stuff uh, from me. Um, Tesla's work in dynamic theory of gravity, which I get into in the last chapter of the book, um, I think has uh, big implications for what is today called the Higgs boson, the, the God particle, the particle that gives matter its mass. I, I uncover, uh, I think I solve uh, in certain kinds of ways, Einstein's dream of combining electromagnetism with uh, gravity. So some of that could be in there. Um, we have not been able to find any blueprints for the tunnels which we now know exist. We took uh, ground penetrating radar photographs of the tunnels, which are 40, uh, which are 50 or 60 feet below uh, the Tesla tower. So there's secrets about the tower, which they may be uh, still held, holding on to. I think the fact that, that you cannot establish through, uh, through just normal research that Tesla is uh, behind uh, the initial invention of the Osprey helicopter airplane is indicative of how secret uh, the government is aspects of Tesla stuff. They've never revealed uh, the particle beam weapon paper that, that I know that they have. So the question is, do they have other things? On the other, on the other side, when I went to the Tesla Museum, although they were very, very helpful, and uh, Dr. Jovanovich, a very good friend of mine for 30 or more years, there's information that they have not revealed. I had to get information from other sources uh, or people that helped me uh, on the sly, giving me papers that that when they that were initially were not given to me when I was working for uh, them. Then you have the other thing. Tesla's a huge hero there. I mean, today maybe Tom Brady is is the guy. You know, if you can get a signature Tom Brady, it's worth you know four or five thousand dollars and sell it on eBay. Uh, so if you could get a document signed by Tesla, Tesla's letters just the other day sold for hundreds of thousands of dollars in, here in America. So let's say you're a Serb and you're you know, in the early 1950s and you're looking through hundreds and hundreds of papers. Would you perhaps keep some of these papers for yourself, you know, just as trophies? Um, and it's understandable. Uh, or maybe just, I don't want to reveal these things. I don't want to let, you know, some American comes in. Why should I let him see it, you know? Uh, so there's, there's still this secret about him. For me, one of the big secrets, which I haven't totally solved, is the cosmic rays. Tesla was very... Uh, uh, strongly believe that that uh, you could harness cosmic rays. And there's a lot of interesting articles, even written by Harvard professors in the 1930s about harnessing cosmic rays. Um, so that that is one area which I think uh, is worth investigating. And his theory on gravity, which again, I get into in the back of the book, um, the Library of Congress said they had papers on gravity that Tesla wrote, but I've yet to see them. Um, Tesla said he had a, a, a a dynamic theory of gravity. I've yet to see a formal paper that Tesla wrote on that. He also had uh, papers or he claimed to have that he was going to write about just how the planets go around uh, the sun. And uh, in 1893, he uh, his uh, rotating magnetic field, he set up uh, units all throughout, you know, the, the electrical uh, pavilion that were rotating at great distances from uh, the rotating magnetic field he had in, in one particular location. So his, so I think that, that he had ideas about the ultimate structure of space and that how the universe is constructed. 
Um, now, some of that might still be in his papers, or maybe he never wrote it all down, but I think there's certainly still mysteries uh, to be solved. But I do think that I solve a lot of mysteries uh, in the new book. I also would, would like to uh, comment on how uh, much research you yourself did in, in uh, preparing for this. And I, I'm very grateful and thankful because I, I've spoken to a lot of people and I know how much work that you did in, in uh, coming up with these questions. So I, I really want to thank you for all the research and work that you did in, in preparing for, for today's meeting. Well, thank you very much. This has been a real treat. Your uh, your biography, Wizard, uh, biography of Tesla, has been a, a huge help to me as, as I've put together this podcast. It's something I rely on for every episode. Uh, and it's really the way that I first got to know uh, a lot of what I have learned about Tesla. So thank you for that book. Uh, thank you for your encyclopedic knowledge of uh, the man and his work. Uh, and thank you for this new book. Uh, it is Tesla, Wizard at War. The Genius, The Particle Beam Weapon, and The Pursuit of Power, uh, published by Citadel Press. It's available now wherever books are sold. Uh, Dr. Mark Seifer, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Like I said, a fascinating conversation about a fascinating new book. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Dr. Mark Seifer about his new book, Tesla, Wizard at War, The Genius, The Particle Beam Weapon, and The Pursuit of Power, which is available now wherever you get your books. Having worked in publishing for 15 years, I know that the first couple of weeks' sales of a new book, and especially its very first week, are vital to the success of a title, and getting it to show up in the what's new and bestseller lists on online retailers, particularly those that share a name with the world's longest river. So, while I recommend this book to anyone who wants to learn more about Tesla, and since you're listening to this podcast, I feel like that's probably you, if you have any inclination to pick up a copy of this book at any time, don't wait. Do it now, the week that this episode airs, the week of August 30th, 2022, to help give Dr. Cipher's new book a boost in the sales charts so more people who might not otherwise find it are able to discover it. My thanks to Dr. Cipher and his publisher, Citadel Press, for getting me an advanced copy of the book and for helping arrange our conversation. I never expected to have interviews on this podcast about a man who's been dead for nearly 80 years, so I'm glad that my first, and likely only, interview was with a man who is such a walking encyclopedia of all things Tesla. I mean, I feel like I know some stuff about Tesla, but Mark knows everything about Tesla, as I'm sure you could tell. Next time, it's back to a regular episode with just boring old me. We'll catch up with Tesla as he turns away from his flirtation with X-ray research and gets back to his primary object of study, wireless transmission of power. But not before blowing up what had been one of his closest personal and professional relationships. Look for that episode sometime after Labor Day, however. It's back to school time for us, and this year that includes my youngest starting kindergarten. So there's plenty to keep me busy before I can turn to the next episode. Until then, thanks for listening to Tesla The Life and Times. I'm Stephen College.